0: Well, hello, Scarlet City Church. I am so glad to be able to join you in this uh, today. And and I'm really grateful to be able to jump in 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 the middle of this series, Creating Space for God, because uh, I've never really found a human in the world that doesn't really want to create space for God or just really needs to be nudged into that space with God. Um, But today I want to talk about wholehearted worship. From Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And my hope in this is to just be able to provide a little snapshot that will serve as a short primer, if you will, uh, for your personal making space with God, so that you can enter into the space of wholehearted worship in your life. So let's hear the passage and let's dig in. Our passage is Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, let me give you some context to this passage. Paul, he's the writer of Romans, and he has spent 11 chapters digging into all kinds of rich theological truths about who God is, about him and and how magnificent he is and as well as our own broken and sinful souls that we carry with us and he takes all of that and in chapter 12 he begins to turn it where he says okay now take all of that in and turn it and to make this your life a whole place of worship so that all of who you are is worshiping all of who god is It's if he's saying take the vision of a gracious sovereign holy and beautiful God. Get all that and apply it. Live it out in your life. Apply it. Now, see, you and I never stop worshiping. I know sometimes we think we do because our idea of worship is a little smaller than God's, but we never really stop worshiping. One author aptly states that worship is like a light switch stuck in the off position or on position. And we can't turn it off. We can't stop worshiping. We were designed by our creator as worshiping beings. It's like hardwired in us to behold, to a desire, to long for, to grab hold of something or someone and make that worthy. So the question that you and I have to confront is simply, what are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? And listen, whatever that object of worship, whether it's a person, whether it's an idea, whether it's a thing, whatever that object of worship is, is what shapes you. It's what motivates you. It's what turns you in your heart, in your, in your mind. It's what shapes you. So again, here in Romans, Paul is calling us to be present to our whole selves to God as worship. Why? Because Paul knows that if we do that, if we can present ourselves before God in all-out worship, if we can do that, then God will shape us. He will be the one shaping us. And get this, since we are made in God's image and He is shaping us in the way that we are made for. There is this powerful harmony that starts to happen, this beautiful unity in our life. And Jesus himself says, this is the abundant life. This is what it means to abide. It's a oneness that we can actually feel and experience. That is what Paul is driving home. Our worship shapes us It shapes who we are. Therefore, we present ourselves at the foot of the cross to behold King Jesus and worship God, to experience the fullness of life that we were made to experience. Now, many of us, many Christians, um, have been trained over their lifetime that when we hear this idea of worship and this call to worship, we often think of it on a smaller scale. So we tend to hear, I gotta go to church more. Or maybe you think, oh, that means I need to add a really sweet contemporary Christian music playlist onto my Spotify so that I can listen to that music instead of Kendrick Lamar. Maybe that's you. And those certainly are good things. Those those are 100% acts of worship, and I hope that you keep running after those kinds of practical acts. But what I want to get at, and what I think Paul is getting at, is that he wants us to see holistic, wholehearted worship that every part of us goes after God, intentionally goes after God. So how do we do this? If worship shapes who we are, how can we live into this wholehearted worship of the Lord? So I want to hit on two points today, and these two points are clothed in some rhetoric that we've been hearing a lot of in the news these days, and I hope in some ways to kind of redeem some of these ideas. But the two points of worship. First is worship as protest, and the second thing is worship as personal policy, Now, we've seen some wild protesting um, this last year, haven't we? And we've probably never heard the word protest as much in our lifetime as we've heard this last year. And it's all because people are angry at what is. The reality they face isn't what they feel is right. And so when that feeling rises up in us, what happens? We stand against those things. We say no. We demand a better outcome. And as we do this in our world, so we should do this in our own lives, in ourselves. Now, there are idols in our lives that rob us from what we were made for. There are things, false objects of worship. Remember, we always worship, so it might be something or someone. There are these things in our lives that we worship that rob us from what we were made for. They unjustly steal our joy, our hope, our dignity, our sexuality. And to those idols, we must protest them. And for the Lord, that kind of protest, saying no, declaring that is not what is right, and being angry and frustrated that those things are the things we go after, when we start to say no to those and protest those, listen, those are like sweet incense of worship to the Lord, to reject what keeps us from Him so that we can have more of Him is worship. Now there's this powerful story in the Old Testament, Joshua 24, where Israel's prophet leader Joshua, he gathers the nation together, and this nation is far from God, filled with all kinds of idols, and they're longing for a better future. And as they're gathered together, he begins to remind them of their story, their history as a nation. He's talking about Abraham and Moses. And in these history lessons, he also brings out the idolatry that has plagued them over and over and over again. And how these idols that have plagued them for generations all throughout their history still plague them today. They still live on in them today. They're chasing them down And they're keeping them from God. And Joshua tells them. And then after this history lesson, he draws the line in the sand to give this famous line. Probably a line that you've heard when he says, Now, therefore, choose this day whom you will serve. Now, we have that little slogan sometimes placed in our house. Uh, In our kitchen, maybe, to say, you know, just a little encouragement. Choose whom this day you will serve. But this line was a place of protest. It was a cardboard sign held up by Joshua that says, "'Choose this day whom you will serve.'" protesting those idols that plague the nation of Israel from experiencing God. And Joshua is calling the people, make the choice right now. Reject your idolatry. Protest that and decide who are you going to truly worship. Now, let me back up a second to give you a short idea of what idols are. Because you may be saying, I, don't, I can't think of any idols. I don't know what, I'm, what I should be thinking about. But simply put, idols are good things that have become God things. Let me say that again. Idols are good things in our lives that have become God things. It's obsessing over your business all hours of the day and at night. It's constantly worrying about our appearance. It's eating or drinking too much. It's too much social media. It's us taking these good things and making them gods over us, making them worthy over us, letting them control how we think, feel, behave, And remember, these these things shape us, whether we see it or not. If we worship these idols, these idols will shape you. Joshua, Paul, even in Romans, they are telling us then that our first act of worship is to protest these things. Be angry that they are robbing you. They are injecting injustice into our lives. And here's the big one that we've really, truly got to know. These idols are shaping us into their own image. They make us drink from dirty water. They make us play on the shallow end of goodness. They rob us of the greatness that God wants to give us. So we worship God by protesting our idols. We say no. And if we keep reading the story in Joshua... They started to reject these idols. They chose the Lord that day, but that wasn't the final worship for them. Just rejecting the idols was not the final worship for them. That that was the first step, but not the final step. We also need a personal policy of worship. We need a guide. We need a vow to worship God. Here's what I mean. Organizations, churches, governments are generally ruled by a policy. We're grateful for policy. We love that policy exists because there's some checks and balances. There's some controls that good things should happen. But oftentimes, when we think of worship of God, we kind of put that idea of worship in the category of freewheeling, right? Right. Worship is supposed to be spontaneous, free and passionate. Worship is letting go, putting our hands up and just getting caught up in it. And again, that is somewhat true. That is definitely somewhat true, but it's not wholehearted. If we're willing to protest the idols of our hearts and take on the Lord, our God, then we need a policy to keep us fixed on him. We need guardrails, we need railroad tracks, we need something that will push us and keep us, keep our eyes fixed upon God. Now, so let me just jump in the deep end and start by sharing a few of my own personal policies, the parts of of the policies that I have in my life, and then we'll start talking about how you can create your own. So just a few simple ones. One is that I read my Bible every day. Another one is that I give at least 10% of my income, which is not a whole lot, but I give 10% of my income to the church's work, to ministry. Another one is that I won't check my phone first thing in the morning. It's a rule, not checking my phone. Another one is that I make every effort to go and participate in Sunday church gatherings. Even if I can't come and gather together, I'm st- we're still going to check it out online. We're still going to engage. And lastly, is uh, another one, is that my wife and I, we pray together every day. And there, there's more. Um, and there's other things. But before you think, man, Nick is near sainthood uh, with these little uh, things that he's committed to. Now, I have to confess, I do not meet these every day all the time. I fail I struggle to get through these, but I've written them down and I've intentionally said these are things that I am going to follow, strive for, and have in my life and over my life. It's like throughout, uh, it's like a thought out for me, a thought out, prayerful vow before God so that I can get God. These policies are not legalistic rules for me. But I decided to take control of habits or unintentional policies that I already had, that were already ingrained in me from being from childhood or just from being um, a white male. There's things that were already ingrained habits that I already had that I wanted to take control of. See, a, a Duke University study suggests that as much as 40% of the actions we take every day are not the products of conscious choice, but of unconscious habits. That means you may not be choosing your policy right now, but that doesn't mean you don't have them. Duke University is saying you at 40% of your life is actually based on those habits. 40%. So, if you're a Christian, worshiping the risen Christ, how will you worship? How will you be shaped? We just do Christiany things without asking: Is this taking me to Christ? Rich Velotas states: The troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without ever being deeply formed by Christ. Is that you? Setting your own policy is a way of declaring before the Lord that I want my life to be deeply shaped by you. You, God. And not just whatever habits I already have, whatever idols are already ruling me, but I want to be ruled by you, God. Now, if you want to get practical with this, if you really want to take next steps, well, let me first encourage you to keep watching over the next few weeks. Pastor Jay is going to elaborate on a lot of these ideas, so keep tuning in over the next few weeks. But I want to also encourage you to find a partner to work on this stuff with. Find somebody in your city group, find uh, your spouse, ask your spouse, talk to your spouse about it, maybe your roommate or a good friend. But as you're doing those things, let me give you some big picture guardrails as you begin to develop your own policies of worship. First is let your personal policy of worship be spirit-empowered. God's empowering presence in our lives is the first attribute Of healthy worship and discipleship. His presence over you is so important. The Spirit has to be in this. These are not just dead practices we're wanting to make up. We want this to be spiritually animated and we want Him to empower it and to fuel it. The second thing is let your personal policy of worship include relationships. Now, God created us to have community, to have friendships, to have people in our lives. And we all know that there has never been a time, a greater season to fight against isolation and loneliness than the one that we're in, where we're forced to be distant, and when we're, when we're called to be um, apart and, and we have to stay in our homes more. It's lonely. And so we've got to build policies of relationships. Just as an example, our city group's meeting over uh, Google Meets, and I for, my, for work, I'm on Zoom and Google Meets and the phone all day long. The last thing I want to do is get on again. But I do, because why? For me, relationship is, is so important to how God is forming me and what He wants for me. So we have to engage in it. Take some walks together. Make sure we're building in coffee time with friends, getting a beer with people, even just texting. Make that a priority. Third guardrail here is let your personal policy of worship be strict, yet seasonal. I mean, be strict about stuff, but be flexible. So for me, an example, I am really strict about reading the Bible every day. That, that's, just, that's just something my wife and I are engaged with and we do. However, how that looks is often very flexible. So sometimes we, um, we'll spend a ton of time in one single passage. Other times we read big, large swaths. So this year I'm reading the Bible through in a year. Last year I spent the year in the prophets. I dove in a little deeper in those. So you got to be strict yet seasonal. Know what season you're in. The fourth one is to let your personal policy of worship be for the glory of Jesus. Now, this can't go without saying, even if it seems obvious. Every policy we create must be with the full intention of glorifying God. This isn't just some kind of self-care plan. This is not just a chicken soup for the soul type of living. It's God word. It's to him because our worship is formation and formation is actually worship. So he is the point. God is the point. So listen, take this message, this short message as an invitation to intentionally worship God with your whole heart. Cease the continual idols of nonstop technology, career climbing, or image management. Image management. But protest the idols and create a policy of worship in your life. And invite a few friends or your spouse on this journey with you. Make it not just a one off event, as we often make worship a one off event, but make this a lifestyle, wholehearted lifestyle. And listen. I want to conclude with simply underlining something that I've said a, a bunch. God has made us to worship Him. But more specifically, He has made us to worship a risen Creator, loving. Full of righteousness, Savior, to declare over our whole life, Jesus is Lord. I want to end with a quote by one of my friends, Hannah Anderson, and she writes in her book, Made for More, and it just, just wraps this up so well. She says, Christ is not calling us to asceticism, or legalistic denial of our personhood in exchange for some ethereal reward. He is not calling us to live to to lives of duty and obligation merely so that one day we will land in heaven. Instead, Christ is calling us to the abundant life that only He can offer. He is calling us to find our deeper selves, the part of ourselves that we created to be like God. He is calling us to a violent authenticity that willingly crucifies our corrupt selves in order that we might fully know our true purpose, in order that we might fully know Him. This is what God wants for you. To know Him, to abide with Him, to find life in Him, to experience joy even in this season in Him. So, let's go to him now with hearts full of worship. Lord, we come before you, and I pray that something in this sticks, and the the pump is being primed so that we can all, as a church body, as a family, start really listening to what you want from us and, and how we can live our lives, every aspect from waking until sleep, how we can live our lives fully, in worship to you. Give us practical things. Give us incredible high experiences with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.